With heroes in London, New York, Jerusalem, and high atop the Sky Tower in Auckland, this is Shire Network News, the weekend is Saturday, October 1st, 2005. Hi, I'm your host, Tom Payne. Welcome to the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog, SilentRunning.tv. Coming up, we'll hear from a blogger and podcaster who's also serving in the U.S. military, right in the heart of Baghdad. Dave, from Reverse Retina Radio, says the information revolution is going to change the way we see everything, not just war. There was a movie with Christian Slater in it uh, called Pump Up the Volume, where he was a pirate radio host, and he had a saying that he used to say on there, he said, the truth is a virus, and it's it's playing out right before our eyes right now. The truth is a virus, and it's spreading, because if you have truth, if you have knowledge, it can now be put out there regardless of who you are. You don't have to be one of the rich and famous and powerful anymore. We have a special two-for-one offer this week from Lawrence Simon. First, in the full-of-crap report, he gives Newsweek a caning over its conflicted attitude, shall we say, towards gas-guzzling cars. And he also provides us with a stirringly patriotic anthem of hope, endurance and excrement from the dark days when Hurricane Rita tried to mess with Texas. Also, this apparently being the week for double threats, our man in London, Andrew Ian Dodge, is joined by Kiwi Blog's David Farrer, who's on holiday in London. Naturally, he's attending the Conservative Party conference. It will be relaxing because I understand that the challenge for the Tory Party conference is to keep your blood alcohol level constant through the entire four days, and that doesn't mean zero. No, it most certainly does not. I've always admired the Tories for their very special ability to attract really top-shelf perverts as MPs. You know, Labour MPs are always being arrested for hanging around men's dunnies after hours and... Yeah, grubby, low-rent stuff like that. But the Tories tend to attract uh, screaming tabloid headlines like Minister discovered in secret Mayfair love nest, dressed in chains in a Manchester United strip. Three teenage dominatrixes held for questioning. Police want to locate owners of a goat and a diving helmet. Uh, a short bit of uh, housekeeping first. I'm actually about to jump on a plane and head off for a week's holiday on gorgeous Rarotonga, where I'm hoping to spend as much time as possible underwater. So I have no intention of doing a podcast next week. I shall be sipping colourful drinks with a little umbrella in them by the side of a pool. I realise how you must sympathise with my awful plight. Right, let's dive into the blog news. Now I have to warn you I'm a bit depressed today because New Zealand National Party leader Don Brash has called Prime Minister Helen Clark to officially concede the New Zealand election. How bummed am I by this? Well, if you're an American, how would you react to the phrase President John Kerry? That's how I feel about this. New Zealand's nanny state Labour government is going to have another three years in which to ban smoking, tax foods high in fat, make exercise compulsory, announce incentives for people to grow their own dope, and make it illegal to smack your kids. Oh, sorry, my bad. They already did that last one. Seriously. Our only hope is that Helen Clark can be distracted into bailing out before the end of her term and taking a position of bland powerlessness, uh, somewhere where she can be invisible and can no longer affect things that happen in the real world. Yes, I think it's time that the right-leaning Kiwi blogosphere got well behind the Helen Clark for United Nations Secretary General campaign. It's not as if it's an important job or anything. Air America sucks. That's more a statement of observable fact than an opinion these days. 
If you need any further evidence that the liberal answer to a question nobody asked is broadcasting from studios on Planet Bizarro, here's an excerpt from the Randy Rhodes Show. She has a caller. She's talking about how the evacuation from the New Orleans Superdome was handled during Hurricane Katrina. And you'll notice how rational and grounded in reality Randy is. The thing that really killed me was the fact that when they bust some of them out of the dome, they loaded them on the bus and they wouldn't tell them where they were going. Yeah, what is that? That is like when you transfer prisoners to one uh Actually, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, it reminds me of a little visit I made to the Holocaust Museum, and I saw these cattle cars. Yes. Yeah, and they told people to go on them, but they didn't tell them where they were going. Yes. They do that to prisoners. If they're taking prisoners from one high-security prison to another, they do not tell them. So what are you supposed to do? Just do a faith-based evacuation? I'm sure he wouldn't send me to Auschwitz. First, they came for the black people, and I said nothing. But, of course, we have to make the idea of the government helping people even more sinister. Won't someone please think of the children? So Randy does. People were taken one place. Their children were taken another yes. place. This is so much like the Holocaust. I can't even, you know, it's like you're not supposed to forget the Holocaust so that it can't happen again. And here you have people being loaded onto transportation vehicles, not being told where they're going, and their children are being taken someplace else. Damn. Looks like our secret plan to render all New Orleans children down into fertilizer to spread on farms owned by Halliburton is out in the open. Curse you, Air America, and the rest of the reality-based community. How can anyone take this kind of thing seriously? This is so much like the Holocaust. You know, you keep this up, and Meryl Urish is going to come over there and kick your ass. Now, I've actually just run out of time to do blog news, because I have to go pack. Sorry about that. But as a consolation, for those of you who've had just about enough of Guardian editorials and BBC documentaries sneering at how crass, boorish, uneducated, and just plain gauche Americans are... Here's a little something to show you it didn't start when Bush was elected. It's a much younger James Garner from the movie The Americanization of Emily, which the great James Linux rediscovered for us earlier this week. It starts with, of course, Julie Andrews. There is a war on, I think. You Americans must have heard something about it, I'm sure. Just pick out a dress, honey, and be back at 5.30. You American haters bore me to tears, Miss Barham. I've dealt with Europeans all my life. I know all about us parvenus from the States who come over here and race around your old cathedral towns with our cameras and Coca-Cola bottles. Brawl in your pubs, paw your women, and act like we own the world. We overtip, we talk too loud, we think we can buy anything with a Hershey bar. I've had Germans and Italians tell me how politically ingenuous we are. And perhaps so. But we haven't managed a Hitler or Mussolini yet. I've had Frenchmen call me a savage because I only took half an hour for lunch. Hell, Miss Barham, the only reason the French take two hours for lunch is because the service in their restaurants is lousy. The most tedious of the lot are you British. We crass Americans didn't introduce war into your little island. This war, Miss Barham, to which we Americans are so insensitive, is the result of 2,000 years of European greed, barbarism, superstition, and stupidity. Don't blame it on our Coca-Cola bottles. Europe was a going brothel long before we came to town. So there... Staying in London, let's now join those two wild colonial boys, David Farrar and Andrew Ian Dodge. This is Andrew Ian Dodge. With me is David Farrar from uh, New Zealand. He's over here for a holiday, but I keep seeing him popping up at political events. Funny, that. 
he's off to conference with me, and today we went to the David Davis launch. David, is there anything you'd like to say to the folks back home, as they always say? Good morning, all. Yes, my idea of a holiday is hanging around the Houses of Parliament and going to Blackpool for the Tory party conference. But it will be relaxing because I understand that the challenge for the Tory party conference is to keep your blood alcohol level constant through the entire four days, and that doesn't mean zero. (laughs) David Davis did announce today his challenge to become the leader of the Conservative Party, which may make him not the next Prime Minister, because they actually know that's going to be Gordon Brown, but the Prime Minister after Gordon Brown. And he was fairly impressive, I have to say, very good speech, and certainly considered the front-runner amongst the candidates there. He certainly also has the look of being a Prime Minister, quite important there. So that was a well-scripted one-hour press conference where he had four of his MPs say why they support him. He gave his speech and then there were some questions at the end. We'll be seen at the Tory party conference that starts on Monday. Um, The other uh, challenges for the leadership, it's quite interesting that unlike back home where the MPs elect the leader, for the Tory party they only narrow it down to two candidates and then all 300,000 members of the Conservative Party actually get to vote if they've been a member for three months to elect the leader. So um, democracy of the masses indeed. It does create a problem though that if the members elect someone as leader who the MPs don't support, um, you can have very big problems. And this happened with Ian Duncan-Smith who won the last ballot. Yes, he's right about that, of course. And the, the fascinating thing is that the MPs got together with Howard and tried to rig it so only the MPs got the vote. They needed a 75% um, vote in both from both the MPs and the activists, and they didn't get the majority that they needed, so the ch- it's back to picking it the way it was done before. Now, although there are a lot of people who said, quite frankly, I will resign my membership of the Conservative Party if I don't get a vote for the leader. And the grassroots in the Conservative Party party are very, very, very important. If you annoy them, you have problems. The Conservatives learned this the hard way in 2001, and even more so 2005. So you have to keep them on side. As far as the alcohol thing, I'm, I'm going to do my best to make sure that David here doesn't end up doing anything lame, like puking on anybody's shoes or... Uh, anything misbehavior um, I'll, I'll make sure he stays on the straight and narrow or the wobbly and narrow uh, hopefully get him into all the right parties it looks like we may even be staying in the same hotel he's going up Sunday as I am so we will be giving you a report obviously he from separately but we'll be giving you a report in two weeks uh, because there's no SNN next week on what's going on and hopefully this is going to be a very interesting conference because it's going to be a giant bun fight with all, all the uh, various Tory candidates trying to get their their supporters in line. And considering everybody thought that it was going to be just MPs, there are a few candidates who are desperately striving to get a party to invite everybody to. So we're going to get smoothed to death, fed lots of alcohol, maybe even a bit of food, and it's going to be generally rather fun. It was very interesting, the attempt to get the party activists to give up their democratic right to elect the leader. Um, some fairly harsh people compared this to 
the enabling act of Nazi Germany where they went to the Reichstag and said we want you to give up all your powers, trust us, leave it to the government. Um, and Rao, obviously much more benign, it was no surprise that the party activists couldn't really work out you want us to vote on that we're not competent to vote for who should be leader. Actually, the funny thing is if you looking at, look at the voting record, and I, I can provide that for you, it's on several sites, including Guido Fox's blog, uh, some of the MPs couldn't be bothered to vote or were too stupid to vote, which is rather amusing. Anyway, uh, it's at least going to keep things interesting. It was a really long, dull summer because of 7-7 and 7-21. After all, you remembered it killed Whiskey in Westminster, my band singer. But now we've got rows going on between Blair and Brown. We have Charlie Kennedy wobbling as leader. Uh, that's even when he's not drinking. And uh, we have this bun fight that's called the Tory Party Leadership Contest. So politics in this country are getting rather interesting if you're a hack. In the... MPs will pre-select to two candidates. I think everyone assumes David Davis will be one of them, but it will be very fascinating who the second person is who makes it through. If it's Kenneth Clark, he is quite popular with the members, he's very pro-Europe, and it would be very divisive for the party, but you couldn't rule out in Clark versus Davis that he could do quite well. Um, Liam Fox, the foreign spokesperson, um, it's seen as a bit of a dark horse, but could be the other person to come through if Clark doesn't make it. Less likely is, now I don't know his surname, David Cameron, is it? David Cameron. David yeah. Cameron, very young guy, perhaps a leader in, in 10, 15 years' time, but from what I hear, he's been somewhat precocious at making his claim at this point. Yes, he is, and what there are, there are a lot of people who are hoping for a dream team, which is the Davids, basically, because Willits has already has thrown his support behind David Davis. They want Cameron on board, obviously, when it goes down to two, so you'll have the three Davids. You'll have youth, intelligence, two brains, Willits, and you'll have the, the council house boy made good in the form of David Davis. Who knows what's going to happen? The Tory party always throws up big surprises. It's going to be great fun to watch, and... David is going to be in, in, a, in a command seat to watch it from a, from a New Zealand perspective. It's and going to be great fun. Certainly to I endorse the David's party. I think there should be more of them. Yes, yes, David's party should be interesting. Um, anyway, we, as we're going a bit over 6 minutes 47, um, I know Bruce appreciates if we keep it short. David and I will say our goodbyes from London. Um, this is Andrean Dodge of AndreanDodge.com, LibertyCadre.net, and DisgracefulMusic.com, and David Farrer from KiwiBlog.co.nz signing off. Until next time. And of course, that next time will have to be in two weeks' time, because I'm officially on holiday on a small Pacific island, and you two are stuck in London. <laughs> Of course, Lawrence Simon is stuck in Houston, which the official prognosis called for to be a pile of twisted metal and splinters by now, but apparently that didn't quite happen according to plan. Oh, of course, the, uh, I'm sorry, I should have realised, the, the Bush Hurricane Control Device, which only targets black and poor people while leaving gated communities full of Republicans intact, pushed it away from his voting base in Texas. I really ought to pay more attention to the weekly set of instructions that Carl Rove feeds directly into my brain from the orbital mind control satellites. Anyway, here in non-destroyed Houston is Lawrence Simon with the Full of Crap Report. Hello, this is Lawrence Simon, and welcome to this week's Full of Crap Report. Well, Newsweek brought us uh, those uh, secondhand tales 
of the Korans that might have had stuff splashed on them and gotten a whole bunch of people killed overseas in riots. Well, they're also a bunch of freaking assholes. Okay, let me quote Robert J. Samuelson, who's uh, been writing for the Washington Post since God was young, and uh, he's been writing for Newsweek for a while. Uh, I'm going to quote you. Why cheap gas is a bad habit. Uh, September 19th. Uh, hence the need for a stiff oil tax. Government needs to foster a market for fuel efficiency. The tax should be introduced gradually. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Some drivers will want hybrid versions of their present vehicles. Others will downsize. It's not a national tragedy for someone to trade in an expedition for a Taurus. Okay, let's take a look at something called the tip sheet, which I call the tip shit, uh, a regular feature of Newsweek. Uh, let's see. July 11th, uh, this is all from Tara Weingarten. Um, the Isuzu Ascender, 14 miles per gallon city, 19 highway. Okay, let's take a look at the next one that I've got, July 25th. Oh my, it's a VW Jetta, uh, 22 miles per gallon city, 30 highway. I think that's going to be the highest we're going to see here. <gasps> Beep, it's summer. Yeah, this one's got a dinosaur in the cover. June 27th. Uh, Pontiac GXP, 18 miles per gallon city, 27 highway. Not bad. Uh, let's take a look at August 8th. Keep on trucking with the Dodge Ram. Uh, 9 miles per gallon city, 12 highway. <sighs> Okay, let's take a look at August 15th. The Subaru B9 Tribeca, 18 miles per gallon city, 23 highway. All this and some admiring stares from the experts who know stylish cars. Yeah, it'll look real nice, you know, filling up at the uh, fueling station there over and over again. Uh, let's take a look at the August 22nd issue. Nissan X-Terra, 16 miles per gallon, 22 highway. A body like Brad's. Yeah, and it sucks down gas like Paul Prudhomme sucks down sticks of butter. Oh, man, okay, you don't know Paul Prudhomme. All right, uh, Michael Moore sucks down cheeseburgers. All right, here we go. Uh, September 5th, the Hyundai Sonata. 20 miles per gallon city, 30 highway. A little bit of an improvement there. Uh, nothing compared to a diesel or a hybrid. By the way, have you heard me mention any diesels or hybrids yet? <laughs> Hell no. Okay, September 26th, uh, the oh, lovely bush bashing episode here. Here we go, Mercedes R500. 13 miles per gallon city, 18 highway. Doesn't even break the 20 unless you're, you know, going downhill both ways. Uh, and finally, beefcake on the block for this week's October 3rd issue. Uh, beefcake on the block, the Pontiac G6. Wasn't that the car that Oprah couldn't give away? Uh, 18 miles per gallon city, 26 highway. Yeah, that's suck ass. Um, well, you know what? Pretty much Robert J. Samuelson is uh, proposing an increased gas tax here, you know, to force people to uh, get more fuel-efficient cars. And Tara Weingarten is pimping for serious gas guzzlers with style. So, really, Newsweek, you're talking out of both sides of your ass. You know what? You're doubly full of crap this week. Thanks, Lawrence. I'm Tom Payne. You're listening to Shire Network News the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog, silentrunning.tv.
One of the things I'm particularly interested in is the democratization of information which is going on right now. Governments are finding it more and more difficult to hide things from people thanks to the internet, mobile phones, digital cameras, blogs and podcasts. Sunny's Data, a top UK group blog, had a very interesting post this week in which one of their writers, uh, Brian Micklethwaite I think it was, commented on a demonstration in London. It seems that a lone protester from a father's rights group had shimmied up onto the outside of Parliament. Uh, He was uh, out there on a ledge talking to someone on his mobile phone while the media took photos of him from below and ordinary citizens also took pictures with their mobile phones and all the while Brian was doing the same with the intention of blogging about it later. It struck him that even the most repressive sort of government really couldn't keep such a political event quiet no matter how hard it tried or even if it wanted to. Communications technology has become so pervasive, at least in the industrialised world, that almost anything that happens will have a camera or a microphone or even simply a pair of eyes connected to a brain capable of going on the internet cafe and blogging about it, trained on it. So it is, even with war. This week's feature interview is with Dave, a US soldier who works in the Green Zone in Baghdad. His job is to help Central Command communicate with the media and the general public, but he also has his own personal podcast called Reverse Retina Radio, which he advertises as the most heavily armed podcast in the world. Dave has some observations on how democratised information is starting to change the way we see the world, but he says, like a lot of things, he started his podcast basically as a way of simply staying in touch with friends and family. I grew up in a military family, and then I joined the military myself, so... I have friends and family scattered to the far reaches of the world, and it was a lot easier to do that than to try and write either 150 emails or write uh, a real impersonal, just kind of one email that went out to a lot of people and didn't reference anything specific about me and was real generic. And so I I was doing that as just kind of a way so people could keep up with what I was doing. And um, I had little or no idea that it would turn into something where total strangers would wind up just randomly accessing it and, and getting involved in uh, in my life. And it really kind of it really kind of is weird like that. It, that's what happens with a blog or a podcast is random strangers then become part of your world um, where they ordinarily probably would not have, like in a medium like television or, say, even just regular radio. You know, I, I, I basically, like I said, originally it started out that I just wanted to let people know what was personally going on with me. And then it turned into something where people started asking questions. People would email me or reply in the comments, and they wanted to know about specific things. And I realized I was in a unique position to tell them uh, certain certain things that they may not have seen because I work in the public affairs office here, and we are the conduit to the media for what goes on over here. But, of course, we give the media the information, and then what they do with it is their, you know, is their, is up to them. And so sometimes we'd put out information and people wouldn't get it, and this became a conduit to kind of, for me personally, to kind of give people the information they were asking for that wasn't being reported by, you know, by, by the mainstream media. I remember one of your podcasts I was listening to, and you're doing it you know, very casually, you're just chatting to people, while you were actually um, you know, disassembling and cleaning your, your, your rifle at the same time. It was uh, quite remarkable. Actually, you're talking to us about what's going on in Baghdad, while you're actually you know, taking apart and putting your M16 back together again. Well, well, yeah, because my M16 needed to be cleaned. <laughs> that really was more of a, a time a time saving effort because I could do two things at once. But, uh, but yeah, no, it, it is it is a unique thing, and and you know I, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this here in five months because I, you know I leave Baghdad, and I'm not sure how interesting um, you know me back at home sitting in a pub drinking a beer is going to be, but. Uh, I, you know, maybe we'll continue to do things. I have people back here that I'm possibly going to be handing it off to because this is unique in a way that hasn't existed since, you know, even, 
even back in World War II, you know, when you had the, you know, the reporters on the front lines telling the story, but they were telling kind of the, uh, the more personalized story. Now it's more of a broader scope when the media reports. They try and report on large-scale operations and not so much about the individual soldier life. So this is kind of a way to get that through, I guess, because people seem interested in it. I don't know. I personally, to me, it's my everyday life. I don't know why, you know, I don't find it as fascinating as some people do. You're in the green zone in Baghdad, aren't you? You don't go out on operations or anything. Right. No, no, no. This is where we're at is the strategic headquarters for uh, for everything. And when you say strategic in the military, you mean long term, long range planning and thinking and and, and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of, uh, of gunplay that that operates in and out of this particular location now. I guess the obvious uh, response to that from most soldiers is there's thinking and planning going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's always planning going on, but. Uh, I think it was Patton that said, you know, even the best laid plans change within 10 minutes of the first shot. So, uh, you know, it, at times it may seem like chaos, but it's a controlled chaos. That's that's the nature of war. It's always a controlled chaos. What are some of the highlights of, of uh, your podcasting career in Baghdad that you can particularly think of? Things that perhaps got a, got a big response when you talked about them. Like I said, it's, it's primarily the, the day-to-day stuff. I mean, the, to, to us, it doesn't seem that unique. It doesn't seem that interesting because it's just the lives we live. You know, j- just like a, a steel worker probably doesn't think his day in the factory is all that interesting, but it can be. Um, a guy named uh, Studs Turkle, who was famous for writing this kind of stuff, wrote a book back in, back in the 70s called Working, where he just went around and profiled the different uh, job, you know, the different jobs that people did. And it, you know, went on to become a bestseller and really offered a unique perspective into people's lives. This is something that the average person doesn't live. I think uh, I think it's gotten down now to the point that we're only 10% of of the U.S. populations in the military, and so we're really a unique subset. And this kind of people seem to be most interested in our day-to-day lives: what we eat, what we wear, how we you know how we sleep, how we how we just go about our daily business uh, more so than they, they can flip on the TV and see in, and see the explosions and, and people shooting at each other. They can't turn on the TV and, and see, you know, the pictures of our family pasted to our walls or, uh, or things like um, the fact that I sleep in a sleeping bag because I'm too cheap to, to go out and get any linen, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. How is podcasting and blogging changing the way people react to things like wars? I mean, I'm talking to you, you were in Baghdad. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Omar, one of the bloggers from Iraq the Model, who also lives in Baghdad. He was giving me an Iraqi civilian's perspective. Mm-hmm. It's a weird kind of uh, experience now for people to be able to talk directly to everyone that's involved. Uh, how is that going to change the way people see war? If war sort of becoming more close, more personal, um, it's going to change the way we relate to the whole concept, isn't it? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, in the past, I'd say, five or six years, there's been this big drive commercially for everything is on demand. You get on-demand video. You get on-demand music. You get on-demand clothing. You know, you can, you can special order everything you want in the world. And this is kind of a, a weird, in a weird way, it's an extension of that. You can now get on-demand information. Um, you can pick and choose what information sources you want to follow, whereas in the old days it was ABC, NBC, CBS, BBC, you know, those folks. Now you can pick and choose where your, your information source comes from. And what it really is doing, I think, in, in my personal opinion, it's doing two things. One, it's forcing the media to respond to the desires of people because if they're not getting it from, you know, what's known in the blog sphere as the mainstream media, if they're not getting it there, they're going to get it elsewhere. But then the other thing it's doing is it's, it's empowering people with information. You know, if knowledge is power, the more, you know, this is allowing us to share it and then, thereby spread the uh, spread the power, I guess, of, of whatever message it is a person has. Um, 
There was a movie with Christian Slater in it uh, called Pump Up the Volume where he was a pirate radio host, and he had a saying that he used to sound there. He said, the truth is a virus, and it's it's playing out right before our eyes right now. The truth is a virus, and it's spreading because if you have truth, if you have knowledge, it can now be put out there regardless of who you are. You don't have to be one of the rich and famous and powerful anymore. You can put it out there, and people can find it, and once they do find those things that are truthful and reliable and, and you know, they, they, they kind of meet the standards of what someone would consider uh, credible, then it, it just spreads like a virus from there. You know, people link to each other and, and pass by word of mouth. And next thing you know, there's thousands of people all sharing the same piece of unique information that may not have been available to them, say, even two or three years ago. Are you able to really do that kind of thing from your perspective, though? I mean, you're serving in the military. There are obviously, you know, political issues and stuff that it's very difficult for you to touch on in, in, in your podcast. One of the big things that's going around the blogosphere at the moment is, you know, are we getting an accurate picture of what's actually happening? Like, you're getting instantaneous information, but is it the right information? Is it all the information? No, and, 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 and I say that because, you know, each person sees the world through their particular, their particular field of vision. No one knows everything. Um, what I always encourage people to do, especially with like mainstream media, watch Fox, watch CNN, watch MSNBC, watch BBC, take a little bit of what they're all saying and put that all together, and then you have the big picture. Then you have the larger, the, the larger concept. And you have to do the same thing with this. Um, I, I make jokes about it all the time. Anybody who would reference me as a source on anything must be stupid. You know, I mean, I'm one small person sitting in you know in the world's largest gated community here in the green zone um and I, so i have a perspective but it's not the only perspective and by no means do i have access to all the information as far as what we can say or what we're restricted on we're really not restricted on anything as long as it doesn't put anybody at risk the beauty of a democracy is they don't expect the soldiers to to be you know wind up toys we're not just supposed to follow you know, follow the party line. I may disagree with, you know, with even the president and the secretary of defense, and I can say that as long as it doesn't turn into insubordination where I refuse to, to follow the orders that have, I've been directed to follow. So in, in the military, it's a balancing act, and there are people who have gotten in trouble because they cross that line. But there is a line that exists where we still have freedom of speech, but it's freedom of speech with caveats, I guess. I wonder if we'd had podcasting and video blogging and, and blogging back in, say, the Crimean War. Would that war have even been fought if you'd had people on the front line showing you know, what was actually going on with wounded and stuff like that? Does it make war more difficult when people are so interconnected now? There's two things that can happen there. And, and as far as the Crimean War... That, you know, it's always tough to it's always tough to say because hindsight's always twenty twenty. Probably a good a good model or a good example of one way it could go is would be the Vietnam War, when for the first time uh, people were actually having to sit it, sit there at their dinner table and watch the you know the young men and women you know in some cases the boy from down the down on the block that they watch grow up all their lives, um, dying and, and and going through intense suffering. Uh, the other way it can go is it can make that very real realization that war is hell. Uh, and, and the nice thing about this is it brings it can bring people closer, so that maybe, hopefully, it can avoid war. We can we can avoid war, you know, by people realizing there were probably times in the past, uh, especially especially in the 18th century, where we charged off to war as this grand and glorious thing because so few people actually understood the implications of what went on when, when the soldier hit the ground. And, and maybe now that will allow for a little better, a, a little more educated um, thought process amongst our leaders and amongst the general populace. Uh, may, maybe we give diplomacy a better, a little more of a chance or a little more time or, or whatever. But, but, you know, no one's saying war is easy. And so I guess uh, with the Crimean War have been fought, 
who knows? I mean, that, that's that's going a far reach to, to try and say that. Would any war be fought? Hopefully no war would ever have to be fought, and maybe now we can make better educated decisions because of things like this. That was Dave from Reverse Retina Radio, the most heavily armed podcast in the world, direct from the Green Zone in Baghdad. Hey, I'm not arguing. Well, I have my Hawaiian shirts packed, got my sunglasses in my pocket, and aloha oi is running through my head, and it's nearly time for me to escape to Rarotonga. But let's go out with what I think you'll agree was one of the blogosphere's finest acts of defiance during the Hurricane Rita emergency. Lawrence Simon stayed put in Houston right through. Not out of bravery necessarily, he pretty much left it uh, too late to make a move. He had three cats, he didn't fancy being stuck on the freeway with them. Uh, yeah, okay, let's just go with him being brave and leave it at that, shall we? Anyway, he live-blogged the whole experience on this blog is full of crap, including the inspirational detail of how a porta potty across the street refused to bow to the hurricane's dictates and blow away. It was an American toilet, God damn it. Lawrence takes up the story. Hi there, this is Lawrence Simon in Houston, Texas of This Blog is Full of Crap. I've been posting on the Stormwatcher site at the Chronicle and a few other sites here and there, uh, but as you well know, I've been documenting the valiant fight of a porta potty that was across the street in a park that they're constructing along West Park. And I checked this morning, and sure enough, the porta potty was still there. Now, just as Francis Scott Key was inspired by the banner over Fort McHenry over the war of, uh, uh, come on Wikipedia, uh, one of those wars, I've been inspired to write my city's municipal anthem to honor this brave, stalwart, and fragrant symbol of our perseverance. I'm going to do it a cappella too. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light What so proudly we hailed at the podcast last dreaming Whose broad door and bright walls through the strong blowing winds or the railing we watched were so gallantly standing. And the autofocus red glare, the trees moving in air, gave proof through the night that our John was still there. Oh, say does that blue porta Party yet stand <laughs> or the lawn by the street <laughs> and the home of the brave. You know, there's only so many more home games left in Minute Maid, Astros. Give me a call. <laughs> uh, this is Lord Simon signing out. Mimo to Osama bin Laden. You're not going to beat these people. They're way crazier even than you. This is Tom Payne standing at the door waiting for the taxi to take me to the airport and my tropical holiday. Wishing all my listeners, Jewish or not, Shana Tova, a happy Jewish New Year. Until two weeks from now, may your God go with you. Oh, no.